you're about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions. Cities during wartime often eliminate outdoor lighting and severely limit indoor lighting to cut down on the effectiveness of air raids. Most famous of these blackouts are those utilized in Britain during the two world wars, and particularly in London during the German raids of the Blitz. The Australian government used a similar attack to combat Japanese air raids, though these restrictions were eased in the middle of 1942. Around that time, a killer prowled the streets, taking advantage of the darkened conditions. I'm Andrew Gable, and this is episode 69, The Brownout Strangler. Arthur Matchin once wrote that strange things are lost and forgotten in obscure corners of the newspaper. Welcome to Forgotten Darkness, a podcast that will aim to prove that that statement is true. Late 1941 and early the next year, the Japanese were consolidating their stranglehold on the Pacific region. Having forced the Americans to withdraw from the Philippines in January of 1942. Around the same time, the Americans, who had just recently declared war on Japan in the wake of the attack at Pearl Harbor, began occupying military stations in Australia, both to help defend that country in the event of a Japanese invasion for it had already suffered several destructive air raids, and as a convenient hopping-off point for the Pacific War. One of the barracks used by the American troop in the city of Melbourne was Camp Pell, located in Royal Park in the northern suburb of Parkville. Experimentation with the implementation of brownouts began in September 1941, and by December of that year, a nationwide brownout began. Melbourne implemented some of the most stringent rules, being nearly blacked out. The Melbourne Argus reported that on December 13, 1941, the darkened streets provided the first real hint of the possibilities of war. Streets usually crowded with Friday night shoppers show no neon signs, no brilliant illumination of Christmas goods. Shops were made to close early, public transport disrupted, traffic accidents became more numerous, even the names of train stations were covered, to thwart any Japanese invasion attempts. It was very nearly a complete blackout, but conditions were eased by May 1942, with dimmer-than-usual lighting allowed to remain on in parks, train lines, and on the campus of Melbourne University. This all sets the stage for today's story. It was early on the morning of Monday, May 4, 1942, around 6.45 a.m., that in the beachside section of Albert Park, A man named Harold Gibson, sometimes his last name is also reported as Billings, who worked at the Bleak House Hotel on the corner of Victoria Avenue and Beaconsfield Parade, 
was walking to work. Just outside the pub, Gibson came upon an American soldier standing in the doorway at 191 Victoria Avenue, head downturned, apparently looking at something on the ground. He might have heard me because he got up and walked toward the corner, turning into Beaconsfield Parade. As Gibson, or Billings, whichever the name might be, approached closer, he tried to find out what the man had been crouching over. I struck a match. It was a woman. She was naked, clothes had been ripped from her body, and her legs folded back. Gibson phoned the police, and by 7.30, a cadre of detectives led by Detective Sergeant Sid McGuffey were on scene. Despite Gibson slash Billings' statement, the woman was not completely naked, though her clothing, mostly black, was practically shredded and bunched around her waist. They also almost immediately noted a blue scarf and a purse lying at the scene, and rifling through this, they swiftly identified the dead woman as 39-year-old Ivy Violet McLeod, who it was later found was using her maiden name of Dargavel, being separated from her husband. The initial medical examiner who accompanied the police, Dr. Augustus Green, noted clear signs of strangulation, as well as a fractured skull, which in his opinion did not immediately result in death. The next day, during the formal autopsy, Dr. Redford Wright Smith concurred with the opinion of Dr. Green and said that it seemed likely that the skull fracture was post-mortal and it likely occurred when the woman, already dead from strangulation, slumped to the ground. It was later discovered that, indeed, Ivy had fractured her skull in a fall at Luna Park in 1940 and that the collapse of the dead body had rebroken that fracture. Time of death was estimated at somewhere between 2 a.m. and 4 a.m. Monday morning, or somewhere between 2 and 4 hours before the body was discovered. That same day, a man named John Thompson visited police and told them that he had likely been one of the last people to have seen Ivy alive, the last aside from her killer, most likely. He said he had known her for about six months. The police ruled out Thompson as a suspect, but the information he gave the police allowed them to reconstruct the last few hours of her life when she had been visiting a few people around Albert Park. She had visited a friend around 6 p.m. Sunday evening. Her whereabouts and movements were unknown for several hours until she visited John Thompson, who said he was her boyfriend. He was unaware that she had been previously married, however. He said that around 2 a.m., she left his room on Kerford Road headed for the tram stop on Victoria Road. She had told him that she didn't need him to accompany her. It was only two blocks west on Beaconsfield Parade, and then her body, exposed but not sexually assaulted to the best that could be determined, had been found very near that same tram stop. With no real leads forthcoming, the murder of Ivy McLeod was just beginning to slip from the public consciousness when, just a few days later on the morning of May 9th, night watchman Henry McGowan was patrolling Malthouse Lane, a narrow thoroughfare in central Melbourne. Just after 4 a.m., when he came upon a woman's purse discarded in the road, he had found in it several documents which identified it as belonging to Pauline Buchan Thompson. Thompson was the wife of a police constable from the town of Bendigo, Les Thompson, and together they had one daughter, four-year-old Caroline, and an adopted son, seven-year-old Bruce. She had worked in Bendigo as a radio announcer, but had moved to Melbourne for work as a telephone operator. 
About an hour after the purse was discovered, about 5 a.m., McGowan's route took him along Spring Street, where in front of an apartment building known as the Morningside House, he came upon an all-too-familiar scene, the partially naked body of a woman. This time, there were clear signs of a struggle. The landlord of Morningside House, Philip Hawks, said that though he and his wife were sleeping in a basement room only feet from where Mrs. Thompson was attacked and killed, they had heard nothing of the struggle which had taken place. The autopsy was conducted by Dr. C.H. Mollison, and like the McLeod murder a few days before, it was found that the cause of death was strangulation, with time of death three or four hours before discovered, or sometime around 1 or 2 a.m. Incredibly, possibly due to the presence of a struggle in this instance, a connection to the McLeod murder wasn't at first seen. The police at this stage are not inclined to the view that they were both perpetrated by the same individual. It was reported in the Melbourne Age. They were still apparently working under this assumption 10 days later on May 19th. Police once again began the task of setting about trying to, con to reconstruct the last hours of the murdered woman. And when they did, they were forced to reevaluate that position. On May 8th, Pauline's husband and son had come to visit from Bendigo. They left Melbourne at about 5.40 that evening. Around 7.15 that evening, she went to the U.S. Hospitality Center. According to Mrs. Hawks, the landlord's wife, someone had called Morningside House at about 8.30 p.m. that night, asking for Coral, which was the name Pauline Thompson had used in her radio career back in Bendigo. This same person had also called several times during the previous week. It eventually became apparent that the last place she was seen was the bar of the Astoria Hotel at the corner of Exhibition Street and Flinders Lane. At this bar, she was seen in the company of a man with an American accent, who witnesses thought was a soldier. She was seen here from approximately 8.30 or 9.30 p.m. until midnight. It is now believed that Mrs. Thompson was murdered by a man waiting in the darkness at the top of the steps of the house, the Melbourne Argus reported on May 13th. Detective Inspector Henry Carey said that it would be very helpful to the police if the soldier accompanying Mrs. Thompson were to come forward, adding that a theory was being investigated that she left the soldier's company at the corner of Flinders Street. There was no word by the police as to what exactly led them to believe that the two had parted company, but they were hoping he could enlighten them as to where she went afterwards. A reconstructed photograph of Mrs. Thompson consisting of a mannequin dressed in clothing similar to what she had worn on the night of her murder, a black hat, black dress, black jacket, black shoes, and green bead necklace, with a photograph of her superimposed over its face, was produced to aid in soliciting witness statements. These murders exacerbated previously existing tensions between Australian and American soldiers over matters such as pay, food rationing, and the fact that a good number of Australian women paid more attention to the Americans than to their native soldiers. And now look what it resulted in. There were now two senseless murders, and in both, an American soldier featured prominently. In one scene near, near the body of the murdered woman, in the other the last scene with the woman. There were other results as well. As Ivan Chapman wrote in his book on the case, Never before had a large Australian community been so utterly terrorized. People began putting out their milk cans long before dusk. 
Suburban doors were locked and bolted. Very few women dared come out after dark, and many offices and factories began allowing female staff to go home early. Australian women in the armed forces were given leave after dark only in groups of six, preferably with male escorts whom they knew well. They had to specify their destinations and report in by telephone when they got there. Every servicewoman had to carry the police emergency number in her handbag. Hospitals in and around Melbourne stopped all-night leave for nurses, and female university students were strongly advised to stay away from evening lectures. The police kept pleading, fruitlessly, for the soldier last seen with Mrs. Thompson to come forward. But he never did. And as the investigation into the last murder wound to a close, police were met with another. On May 19th, another body was discovered about 6.30 or 7 a.m. in Royal Park, just off Gatehouse Lane, just outside the boundaries of Camp Pell. It was found by a butcher by the name of Albert Whiteway on his way to work. This was 40-year-old Gladys Hosking, who was working as a secretary and librarian in the chemistry department at Melbourne University. Like the others, she had been strangled, clothing, her black jacket, gray dress, and multicolored sweater, torn to shreds, and though naked and exposed, was apparently not sexually assaulted. She seemed to have been attacked on a footpath and dragged to where her body lay in a patch of distinctive yellowish mud just on the other side of a fence. Her umbrella, black hat, and gloves lay on the path. A purse lying nearby contained some money, indicating that once more, robbery was likely not the motive. In interests of modesty, and because the crime scene was easily visible from houses across the street, a small enclosure was built around the body. Miss Hosking had been dead for quite some time when discovered, possibly having died sometime around midnight. She had left the university campus about 6.30 the evening before with a co-worker named Dorothy Pettigrew. But her whereabouts later that evening were not determined. She hadn't returned home to eat dinner, but examination revealed that she definitely had eaten that evening. It was theorized that she had gone visiting friends, but this remained undetermined. Hosking was from Perth and had lived in Melbourne for 12 years. Previous to moving here, she had also worked at a girls' school in the suburb of Camberwell. She was also well known as, as an amateur actress and writer as well. There was criticism of the city government, with many people feeling that although the brownout conditions had been eased by this time, the spot in Royal Park where Gladys had been killed was still far too dark. Feeling the pressure from the public, and due to the Hosking murders' extremely close proximity to Camp Pell, the Criminal Investigation Bureau sought the cooperation of the American Army authorities, asking whether they had noticed any unusual noises the night of the murder. Detective Inspector Henry Carey commented that there was a man who they were hoping to interview, a man who could lead to a definite development before morning. The statements provided by the Camp Pell authorities had borne fruit. It was found that around 8.10, a soldier keeping watch over some parked military trucks saw a woman in a black coat, who he identified as Gladys Hosking, in the company of an American soldier walking along the path. A brief time later, another statement revealed that an Australian soldier had seen a man crawling under a fence and moving toward those same trucks, 
When he shone his light at the man, he saw it was an American soldier. He acted bewildered and said that he didn't know where he was, and the Australian soldier showed him the way back to Camp Hell. A short time later, soldier Anthony Gallo said that a friend of his, Eddie Leonsky, wandered into camp covered in yellow mud from his tie to his shoes. Eddie said he had been drunk and fell down, that he was tired and he was going to sleep. These developments led police to be certain that they had apprehended the right man. This was confirmed on May 20th, when a man named Jackson, who had frightened away a man who had broken into his niece's home on the night of May 13th, saw Leonski in a lineup and identified him as the man he had chased away. It later came to light that two women had been attacked the night before as well. After he was apprehended, there was the almost-to-be-expected denials from his family, who couldn't believe that he would do such a thing. In fact, when covering for being contacted by the military, the family didn't even tell his mother what Eddie had done, instead telling her that, she, that he had received a citation for bravery. So who was Eddie Leonsky? Born in 1917 in New York City, Edward Joseph Leonsky was one of six children born to Polish parents. His father, a habitual drunk, left the family when Eddie was seven, and his mother soon took up with another alcoholic. She was later diagnosed in Bellevue with manic depression, or bipolar, as we would now call it, as well as schizophrenia. Three of Eddie's brothers were habitual criminals, and one of them was committed to a psychiatric institution. His mother was extremely overbearing, and for his part, Eddie was equally devoted to her. He scarcely paid attention to any other women, in fact. At the age of 24 in February 1941, Eddie was drafted into the Army and was first sent to Fort Sam Houston in San Antonio, Texas. Here, his genetic predisposition toward alcoholism came to the fore, and though he had always been a drinker, he began drinking more and more heavily. When drunk, his behavior was erratic, and he would, friends said, act like a man out of his head. He would walk on his hands, habitually start fights, randomly launch into rants and tirades, and often break down into tears. And, said Anthony Gallo, when he gets drunk, he talks like, you know, like softly. It sounds like a girl to me. It's different from his usual talk. He was, according to his CO, perpetually in small trouble. At some point before leaving Texas, he choked a woman he had been having an argument with, but she pressed only a lesser charge, and somehow, Eddie stayed in the Army. In January 1942, his unit shipped out to Camp Pell in Melbourne, and his downward spiral escalated. In early March, he followed a girl to her home in St. Kilda and attempted to rape her. A short time later, he stalked another girl, eventually confronting her and telling her, I'm thinking of choking a dame, and it might as well be you. The girl escaped with her life, but the next wasn't so lucky. The confession written by Leonsky in police custody tells what happened next. On May 3rd, he was with friends drinking at the Bleak House Hotel on Victoria Avenue. The bar closed at 2.30 a.m., and when he staggered out into the seaside air, he saw a woman standing nearby, waiting for a tram. This was Ivy Violet McLeod. My tram seemed a long time in coming. I got to thinking about how lonely I was. 
Then I thought about six Australian civilians who jumped me one time and checked me until I was almost unconscious. I got tired of waiting and started to walk up Victoria Street. I saw a girl standing by a doorway. She smiled. I made some comment about her bag. I took it in my hand and then gave it back to her. The girl moved back into the recess and I must have followed. I had my arms around her neck. I grabbed her by the neck, the left side. I changed the position of my hands and grabbed her at the front of her throat. I squeezed and she fell rapidly. Her head hit the ground while I still had my hands on her throat. I started to rip and tear her clothes until I came to the belt. I just couldn't rip that belt. I ripped her clothes below the belt and came back to it. The belt made me mad. While I was still trying to rip her belt, I heard footsteps. I picked up my hat which had fallen off, put it back on. I turned to my right and walked up Victoria Street. I didn't look back. I don't remember what time or how I got back to camp. The timeline here doesn't seem to add up. He attacked McLeod at about 2.30 a.m. And given that Gibson slash Billings saw a soldier leaving the body when he approached around 5.30 a.m., we have three hours basically unaccounted for in Leonsky's story. When asked about the murder of Pauline Thompson, he said, I remember now about the girl who was killed in Spring Street. I met her in a restaurant. She was waiting for an order. I asked her if I could sit with her. She smiled and said, all right. I told her that I would rather have something stronger to drink. She told me that she knew of a place. We walked around a bit. It was raining and we stood indoors. We met a soldier who showed us a place to go and get a drink. We were sitting at a table drinking. I bought a few drinks. There was a girl sitting at a table in the corner looking at me. I was looking at her. My girl wanted to shout. I told her when I went broke, I would let her shout. She did shout. She was singing in my ear. She looked into my eyes, and it sounded as if she was singing just for me. She was drinking gin squash. I tasted it, but it was too mild. She said that she was not married. We were talking about life. We got along swell together. She asked me if I needed any money. We sat around a while and drank. She told me that she sang. After I went broke, she kept on buying all the drinks. When we left the hotel, she picked up her bag. She had a nice voice. She sang as we walked along. We turned a corner. There was nobody around. I didn't see anybody. I just heard her voice. Then when we came to the, then we came to the stone steps. They were long steps. I grabbed her. I grabbed her. I don't know why. I grabbed her around the neck. She stopped singing. I said, keep singing, keep singing. She fell down. I got mad and then I tore at her. I tore her apart. There was someone coming across the street. I hid behind a stone wall. I was terrified. My heart was pounding a mile a minute. I couldn't bear to look at her. I saw her purse. I knew I had to get back and I didn't have any money. I picked up her purse and put it beneath my coat. This is when he apparently took a little bit of money out of the purse and discarded it where Henry McGowan found it in Malthouse Lane. Finally, of the murder of Gladys Hosking, he said, I was drinking beer in the Parkville Hotel. On the corner I met a girl. It was a small girl. She was carrying an umbrella. It was raining, and I asked her to let me walk along with her. She said, all right. We walked along the street. We came to her house. I asked her to walk on with me and show me the way to the camp. She said, all right. Soon we came to a very dark part of the street. She stopped and said, there's the camp over there. 
She had a lovely voice. I wanted that voice. She was leaving to go to her home, and I did not want her to go. I grabbed her by the throat. I choked her. She was so soft. I said to myself, what have I done? I will have to get away from here. I then got her to a fence. I pushed her beneath it. I carried her a short distance and fell in the mud. She made funny noises, a sort of gurgling sound. I thought I must stop that sound, so I tried to pull her dress over her face. I became frightened and started to run away. It turned out that Leonsky had actually confessed to Anthony Gallo after the murder of Pauline Thompson. As Gallo later said in his statement, I saw him standing in front of his tent, and he appeared to be drunk, so I stopped to talk to him. I said, what's the matter with you? He said he was going out. I said, why go out? Why not go to bed? You're drunk. Then he told me, I killed, Gallo, I killed. Leonsky had told him to get a newspaper, and he did. He then paged through it and said, doorstep, doorstep, that's the one. But Gallo had thought it was just drunk talk and so didn't say anything. A few days later, the first mentions of the American soldier seen with Thompson appeared, and he began to think that maybe there was some truth in it, but he still didn't say anything until after Gladys Hosking was killed. He could have saved at least one life if he had taken the drunken confession a bit more seriously. I'm not really sure what to make of Leonsky's apparent fascination with voices. It's one of the most well-known features of the case. But like how the vampire confessions of John George Haig can be pretty much dismissed as an attempt to lay the groundwork for an insanity plea, I wonder the same about these. Leonsky refers to himself in his confessions as a Jekyll and Hyde type character, with two personalities. Is it a coincidence that, as Ian W. Shaw has pointed out, in the 1941 Spencer Tracy version of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, Mr. Hyde has a fascination with voices? Perhaps, perhaps not. In the course of his eventual trial, he was examined by Frederick Wortham, one of the psychiatrists who had examined Fish, as well as Robert Irwin, whose story is in episodes 58 and 59 of this podcast. His conclusions were, Eddie was completely dependent on his mother and was considered a mama's boy. The mother image dominated his whole life. That his three victims were all women considerably older than he was is psychiatrically most significant. He unconsciously linked their voices with his mother. The whole psychological explosion occurred in a period of deprivation when he was away from home and separated from his mother, but not from her dominating image. The deeds constituted symbolic matricide. I would also point out a coincidence I noticed while putting this together. All three were wearing a good deal of black as part of their outfit at the time. I wonder whether that had something to do with what set him off. I also noticed all three were leaving him at the time they were killed. McLeod's tram was coming and she would have been leaving. Thompson was at her home, and Hosking, having taken him to the camp, was also on her way home. I wonder whether in some way he perceived his time in the army as his mother leaving him, rather than the other way around. At any rate, Leonsky was found legally sane, and after a relatively quick court-martial, was executed at Pentridge Prison on November 9, 1942, the order of execution personally signed by General Douglas MacArthur. He was hung on the same gallows that had been used to execute notorious bushranger Ned Kelly 62 years before, a figure whom, 
coincidentally, Leonsky had a fascination with. His grave was moved several times, first in Melbourne Spring, Springvale Cemetery, then to a graveyard in Ipswich, Queensland, and finally to a military cemetery in Honolulu. As for the three women, Pauline Thompson is buried in Warrengal Cemetery, and both McLeod and Hosking are buried in Faulkner Cemetery in Melbourne. And that's the end of this episode. As always, a list of sources consulted for this episode can be found in the show description, and photos associated with this week's story will be on my Instagram at Forgotten Darkness. If you have a question, a comment, or if you know a lesser-known story that you'd like to see covered, leave a comment on the podcast page, post it to the Facebook page at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, or send it to the email at ForgottenDarkness77 at gmail.com. I'm also on Twitter at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, and you can DM me ideas there. I also now have a Patreon at patreon.com slash forgdark. That's F-O-R-G-D-A-R-K. There's links to all these pages in the show description as well. So, until next time, this is Andrew, signing off. Discover more shows like this one at straightupstrange.com.